0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakresky, a tech policy reporter here at the Washington Post. I'm joined today by Brett Arsenault, a corporate vice president and chief information security officer at Microsoft. Brett, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Kat. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, and so I want to begin today with a primer for our audience because we've been hearing about the cloud for more than a decade from business leaders, but at times can still feel like a murky tech buzzword. So just to kick things off, what is the cloud?
2: Well, <laughs> it's a really good question and I appreciate the, the opportunity to continue to clarify and simplify. Really, when I think about the cloud, if we think about you know historically you had data centers and consumer applications, Now, instead of the cloud being a privately owned entity, you have a cloud service providers who now provide capabilities for compute, storage, and network um, to be able to run your applications. And they're distributed around the world. And I think the way to think about it is there's three primary types of cloud services. There's what's known as infrastructure as a service, where you basically take whatever you'd run in your data center, virtualized or not, and then move it into one of these cloud centers. There's platform as a service where you can natively write applications to that, that cloud service but I think has some big benefits in that. And then there's software as a service, which are applications that are just full runtime. So if you think of um, Office 365 as a software as a service or Salesforce as software as a service. So they are really the ways I think about cloud services.
1: Thank you so much. And yeah, I think it's helpful to lay out how this, impacts so many different parts of Microsoft's business, as you laid out, that you can provide computing power to other companies, um, perhaps a social network or the apps we access on our phones, but also at the same time, provide your own software. So the idea that I can access something in my OneDrive from my phone, tablet, or computer. And just given the broad range of applications and software that the cloud touches today, I mean, at this point, what critical data isn't in the cloud?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. More and more data continues to move to the cloud. There's cost efficiencies, there's agility, there's performance, and there's uh, elasticity. So imagine some applications. If you're thinking from a business perspective, that you only run like uh, some companies run surveys, and they run once a year or twice a year. You don't have to have all that capacity that's sitting there unused. And so, uh, to be honest, I think about 90, oh, I think 98% right now of the portfolio of the things we run here are actually in the cloud today.
1: And are you seeing a similar shift among other businesses, especially with the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think we saw two things. I think you're seeing a shift as a ge- as a general part of the digital transformation. Most companies are becoming software companies that maybe traditionally weren't. And then certainly the pandemic accelerated a lot of that work. So because of the fact that you had people working remotely, the ability to access a cloud service from anywhere, anytime on any device really became an important part of how people were working. And so it accelerated a lot of the work that people are already doing. It it pressurized that system, absolutely.
1: And we saw that the pandemic created a big boom in business for companies like Microsoft. Um, More recently, the company reported a bit of a slowdown in cloud computing revenue. Do you think this aspect of the business is recession-proof?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not the financial person, Remember, I'm just a person who operates and protects Microsoft. I'm not on the on the on the selling side, but obviously, I care about the business we're running, and I can tell you, with the customers I meet with, um, I you know, I think that the the idea of having a compute experience that's cost-effective, that you can you continue to scale, and that can for me provide continuity and disaster recovery capabilities doesn't really change, and I think that. More and more, or at least the, the trend I'm seeing is what what you know what vendors can provide most of the services that I need because we see so much complexity in that space today. So, the more that people can provide, I think the better off you are to be, uh, you know, in the in the headwinds of recession, the companies that can provide the most capability will be the best served.
1: And Brett, because you mentioned your role is really protecting Microsoft, I wanted to bring in a question we got from a viewer about security. Um, okay. Bev- Beverly Baxter from the United States asks. Given the history of security breaches involving the cloud, why should we trust cloud security in the future?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure the specific instance that we're referencing here, but I think if we look at, if I look at sort of what I see in the threat landscape and the types of things we see, most of the things that I'm seeing happening are really identity-based attacks that are happening in this space. And it's funny, I uh, on the intro reel, I saw the comment about 6.3 trillion events a day. I think that was uh, well probably eighteen months ago. And today we're at forty three trillion events per day. And so one of the best tools, the best tools you have to protect yourself is to have really good fidelity and intelligence that lets you see the trends and patterns that are happening. So we continue to see this identity based attack, regardless of where location it's at. And so you'll see like in the last year alone, we've seen a sixty percent increase where we're seeing over nine hundred and twenty uh, password attacks per second, where we saw just under six hundred last year. And so you wanna be able to have signal that you see, predict, and protect you from those kinds of situations. That honestly can really only be done at cloud scale. And so I think that that ability to have signal and then to act on that signal, and I see it repeatedly in our environment is really changing the game for us.
1: What do you think is driving that massive increase in threats that you just laid out?
2: Yeah, Um, well, I think there's a couple of things. I think that we've seen basically the pace and the sophistication of the attack vectors and the financial models continue to evolve. And so there's just opportunity for bad people to continue to do bad things that, that end up having reward at their reputation, but more importantly, financially, the actual, if you look at you know identity, as I mentioned, or the ransomware attack models and the financial models that are trending for that, it has a pretty big growth trajectory. It's an economy all of its own. And so while there's opportunity for that to happen, um, you'll continue to see that, that, that threat landscape evolve. And this has been going on long before. I mean, I mean to be honest, this, when we created the mail system, mail fraud came about. When we you know, created the telecommunication system, telecommunication fraud came about. So it's not surprising that when you have internet and internet services, you would see bad things happen. And the question is, how do you anticipate, predict, and protect yourself from those?
1: It's interesting you mentioned the sophistication of actors, because we often hear victims of cyber attacks talk about that. But recently, there have also been some breaches again and again, where we've seen actually teenagers being able to breach, you know, major companies. I'm thinking of Uber and Twitter and others. And so why do you think these less sophisticated attackers are still able to break through?
2: It's a really good question, and I, you know, I have a teenager, and I still think she's more sophisticated than I am. But I, but so I won't, I won't use ageism in the in the response. But I will say, interestingly, you you still see a massive attack surface of people not doing the brilliant basics. And so when you think about those types of scenarios, uh, like I mentioned in the password scenario, um, if and in, in, even in the cases you just mentioned, the ability to engineer or get someone's password makes it a reasonably straightforward model to go do. And so as an enterprise, the question is, you know, why are you having any passwords at all? Why are you not using 2FA? Because that's like the fundamental thing. You're 20 times, 20 times more likely to be compromised if you use password versus multi-factor authentication. And so in this, it's abundantly available. It's, you know, we continue to, as an industry, this isn't a Microsoft statement. And so, you know, we were on the journey to get rid of passwords years ago. And so you still see a lot of entities coming on board and doing those things and just doing the Billion basics: make sure you have multi-factor authentication, only all access from certified, healthy devices and ensure you're collecting the telemetry that lets you look for anomalies and or detect these things as they happen at cloud scale. And so I think that, that you know, the whole industry has to evolve into that model, but there's some basics I think we still aren't getting right as an industry.
1: And you've previously said Microsoft has said that all employees would be passwordless by 2021. So how many Microsoft employees are still using passwords today? Nobody. Wow, and so when you say that sorry, using multi-factor, should... oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Let me, let, me, let, me, let me clarify. So the first thing we do is get rid of the uh, users to have, have to know anything about a password in the system and that anything in application you talk to requires multi-factor authentication. And so, we're at 100% of that for the systems today. And um, we'll continue to evolve that journey and evolve that journey on back end as well. But yeah, today, I have no idea, like we don't, I have no idea what my password would be.
1: <laughs> and what does multi-factor authentication look like at Microsoft? I know different companies use different techniques to verify.
2: Yeah, it's a really good point. And for us, you know, we sort of, you know, a little bit of maybe sharing our journey and our learning, and it's not saying it's the right one, but it's the journey we used. Um, as the person who ran around saying 2FA everywhere, which was the previous way we'd say two-factor authentication. Um, you know, and, and originally, like many companies, we only used 2FA for our VPN perimeter outside in access. And we sort of flipped it on our head and said, instead of saying 2FA everywhere, which meant having a, you know, a smart card or some other component, um, we said, what if we could just get rid of passwords? And that became a design change principle for the way we did things. And for one, it wasn't like me forcing 2FA on people, our users actually loved it. So I created a system that users loved and the IT department trusted. And so getting to that model, it it seems simple in words, but it was a big mindset shift, a mindset shift for us. And the important thing on 2FA was not to be so prescriptive that we would only allow one type of multi-factor authentication. It's not a very inclusive way to go do something. So we built native capabilities in Windows Hello that could be fingerprint sensing, iris, facial. Um, remember, a doctor is in a different scenario, as an example, with a face mask, glasses and gloves, what are you gonna go do? And there's lots of other biometric, cryptographically secure ways to go do that. And so for us, we use Windows Hello as an integrated part of what we go do. And so I just walk up to my PC, it recognizes, in this particular case, the one I have here is based on facial. It recognizes me, it logs, it logs up, comes in and it's running, it's secure, it's a faster login, it's a great experience. I don't run all windows. I think people are confused. I'm like the fifth largest Mac shop in the world. So I have Mac, Linux, iOS and Android. So for that platform, we use the Microsoft Azure Authenticator, which is an uh, out of band multifactor authenticator we use uh, from your mobile device. And so the key was go from know something, know something, password, password to not know something, have something, which is 2FA and a smart card. It was know something, be something right? Some part of of you that you're the key. And so that was really how, that's what we did for us inside at Microsoft, if that makes sense.
1: And I wanted to ask, do you see in the future, you know, us going completely passwordless, you know, even for consumers of technology too, outside of business?
2: Yeah, I think this is, uh, sorry to be so personal, this is the, this is the, (laughs) my wife asked me why I can't do the same thing for our house that I can do for work. (laughs) And so, you know, why do I go to my TV and need to log into it? internet streaming service and I can't just have it auto do that that component. So yeah, I believe there's a lot of great work we can do um, with the identity capabilities we're building, but it will take a little bit longer to do it in the consumer space. It absolutely will.
1: And I wanted to ask you I recently, we can do it
2: sorry, I am confident we uh, can do it.
1: And I recently heard the uh, term uh, MFA fatigue, um, which I, I had previously heard in the context of passwords. And we've seen this with some breaches, like the Uber breach we referenced earlier, where, you know, the hackers just send so many, uh, you know, MFA notifications that a person gets overwhelmed and and might click OK to one of them. Um, How are you thinking about that threat in designing this approach for Microsoft?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really good, it's a really good point. And it's a real issue. I mean, it is, you know, like I said, everything will evolve, you, you do passwords, and you do MFA, and then someone will figure out how to get someone to do something around MFA. And so there's a number of things we're working on in that space. One is um, to actually create the it's called token binding, which is a really good thing to go do where Even if someone was to get your MFA credential, which is the software component of it, it can only be replayed from the same device. It's not exportable. It can't be played from any other device. So if even if someone could do it, they can't run it from anywhere else. So that's work we've been working on that. Um, We're actually talking to our partner groups today here in Redmond about that. Additionally, is to create better processes for in-person proofing and confirmation of who you are so that you don't get the fatigue process so that you remove the social engineering, because it's really a social engineering experiment in what they're doing. And so how do you make it simpler to not allow people to go do that and that they, they that we can start filtering out? Um, there's capabilities in our cloud service, again, where we can see multiple attempts to MFA from a specific area. We can actually suppress those and put that in as a high risk action and take automatic action for you on that. which is just a very amazing thing to go do. It's an adaptive risk model we have.
1: And I wanted to go back to, in our intro video, we showed a quote of yours saying, businesses are grappling with the most complex and fast paced threat landscape we've ever seen. Microsoft hasn't been immune to those threats. Um, Microsoft itself was hit by the SolarWinds gang, which has been attributed to Russian foreign intelligence. Um, And yet the company initially said it didn't see an impact. Um, Why did it take so long to find out or admit that they had removed source code?
2: Well, I think that's a different. um am going have to rephrase the question because I think I may be misunderstanding what you're saying.
1: So I just wanted to understand, um, basically, in the aftermath of the Solar Winds attack, there was kind of a delay between when we learned of Solar Winds and then learning that you know the gang had actually accessed Microsoft source code. Um, why did it take so long to find out?
2: Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, two things we should comment. So one. Um, most of these investigations are always really long running, right? Because you have a massive system you're looking through. And as soon as we understand and know and understand something, we share that immediately when we understand what the impact has been, including the, a lot of the work you did with Mandate and other companies to share the IOCs that will let other people detect and find out if they had those things. So we always are proactively and transparently communicating when we know things. In the fog of war, while you're looking for it, though, it doesn't mean you necessarily see it right away. So that was just as soon as we were, uh, were able to confirm and understand what was there, we did notify people that happened that. I don't feel great about it, but I think there's another thing that's really important to be uh, kept here, which is we don't believe in t- today, it, it's, it's our view that that the ability to read source code, like I run the transparency centers where customers can come look at our source code, including governments and enterprise customers. We don't believe in a security obscurity model around source code. So. The fact that they had it, I don't like it because it's not what I want them to go do, but it's not from my perspective, the thing I'd be most worried about in that scenario, right? Because we, we have this model about allowing people to look at source and things that we do in that space. But it's totally a fair question. I, you know, I'd love to have said it would, we could have done it sooner.
1: And on that point, I mean, SolarWinds, um, then the exchange hack, all big wake up calls for industry. How did it change security practices at Microsoft?
2: Yeah, I think it changed for us uh, many things, like uh, like it changed other companies in this space. I think the examples you lo- you're using are this example of how vulnerable are you to your supply chain, and how do you entran- how do you ensure? I, I refer to this sort of the five things I'm thinking about right now are ransomware, regulations, Russia, remote work, and supply supply chain, and how do you ensure that your supply chain is consistent? And I think there's a lot of things going on with regulation around this, like the S bomb for the software bill of materials and other things that help provide a level of transparency in the the components you take in. But just, and then also, frankly, um, thinking about how I, I see a massive trend. I have 140 uh, top security officers coming here that I'm hosting from 30 countries for a few days where we're talking about trends and patterns. One of the biggest things we're seeing is the complexity of the security space and how do you simplify all the security solutions you have, reduce the vendor footprint so that you have less seams, so you can, one, act more effectively, more quickly and more importantly, take advantage of the skills shortages that we're all facing. And so we see that as a really important part. And that's some of the learnings we took out of this is how do you think about supply chain? How do you think about your workforce? And how do you think about being not just effective, but being efficient, particularly now with the, the recessionary headwinds we're talking about.
1: And we just have a minute before our break, but I wanted to ask you, you know, given those supply chain challenges that you laid out and the fact that you're going up in some of these instances against nation state actors, I mean, what do you think the most effective thing the federal government uh, could, what is the most effective move the federal government could make to help companies like Microsoft facing these threats?
2: Well, I think, to be honest, I think the work we're doing, you know, with uh, uh, both DHS and CISA and the sharing that we're doing, like even in the scenario where we, you know, we, where we talked about the defending Ukraine and the early lessons from the cyber war, I think the transparent sharing of what we're seeing uh, in, from an industry perspective across not just government, but also with financial services, healthcare, retail, being able to share the intelligence, both on actor intelligence and signal intelligence, And then providing that as guidance to customers to go implement and do is awesome. The more though that I can do that automatically in the cloud as opposed to saying, here's guidance, go implement this as opposed to, I can just protect you from this. Like in the exchange scenario, if it's in our cloud service, it was not impacted at all. It was only on-prem systems. So our ability to actually take that and go implement that right away would be great. And then I think the government's role in this and I think CISA has done a good job in this is continue to provide guidance on the areas that we're seeing the largest footprints and what are the protective actions and detective actions you can take relative to that? And I you know, I think that relationship and the, the work we're doing there is much improved in the last five years based on a lot of work th- between the entities working on that today. And not just the, by the way, it's not just the US government. Like we have to think about this globally. We have the same, same issue around the world.
1: Well, and on that point, I'm looking to dig into some of the more uh, global and international questions in just a few minutes. Thank you so much. We have lots more to discuss and we'll be back in a moment with more from Brett Arsenault. Stay with us.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event Sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: Hello and welcome. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. The Cypher Brief is a media organization that puts issues vital to national security and cybersecurity in the forefront. And I'm delighted today to be talking about how cloud computing is really reshaping the way that companies around the world are both operating and innovating. And joining me to talk about this are Raghu Rajaram, Global Cloud Consulting Leader, and Andrew Lowe, Technology Transformation Leader, both with the EY organization. Gentlemen, welcome.
4: Thank you.
3: I think it's safe to say that more businesses are coming to the realization that the cloud really is the future. Raghu, I'm curious, as you work with your clients on their business transformation objectives, what are they
0: most looking to accomplish? Well, the key exam questions our clients ask are, how do we launch new products in weeks instead of months? How do we innovate through new business models? And how do we fundamentally change the customer and employee experience? Our clients are finding ways to solve for these questions, while at the same time addressing the regulatory pressures or the threats from the competition. These drivers require them to ideate, enable, and operate at speed. This is where they're embarking on business transformations through cloud and looking for those positive value outcomes. The results they are looking forward has fundamentally changed from a traditional cost-takeout function to more into agility, ability to innovate, and resiliency in whatever they do.
3: I'm really interested as well um, to kind of understand what some of the core tenets are when it comes to successful cloud transformation.
0: Look, the, the core tenets that we practice in driving transformative value through cloud are by putting humans at center, technology at speed and innovation at scale. Let me explain to you what that means. First to start developing a human centered mindset and a culture where we put our customers on people first right from ambition to market impact this is what we call as putting humans at center next to move from a highly customized monolithic architecture to a cloud native composable business capability and thereby creating and curating experiences for our customers which we call as technology at speed and finally to develop an ecosystem-based mindset that crosses organizational boundaries when delivering value to our customers and employees, which we call as innovation at scale. We believe these three core tenets will drive true value through cloud.
3: You you mentioned something there, an ecosystem-based mindset that I want to touch on just a little bit more. I think it's important. Andrew, let's talk about the concept of ecosystems. What are they and how are they driving innovation?
4: I mean, for us, ecosystems expand both on the go-to-market side of an organization, the inter-side of an organization across the organizational boundaries, and into the supply chain and the back end of an organization in terms of how they deliver with their delivery partners. When executing a significant business transformation through the cloud, it's a complex undertaking, particularly in the current context where uncertainty is high, business needs are continuously changing, and organizations are becoming multi-clouded. It's nearly impossible for any organization to have everything that's required to successfully deliver a transformation all by themselves and realize the positive outcomes from the cloud. This is where ecosystem business models are becoming ubiquitous in terms of companies seeking to optimize the capital they deploy and create new forms of value at a much higher pace.
3: So let me ask you then, how does ecosystem integration really help drive value in business transformation in the cloud?
4: To set up and succeed in an ecosystem business model and using that to transform through the cloud, organizations need to put the customer at the center, adopt that infinite mindset that extends beyond their organizational boundaries in co-creating fulfilling customer and employee experiences through integrated ecosystems. These integrated ecosystems for cloud transformation will drive through new joint propositions, access to new geographies, proactively address regulatory changes, and challenge sector boundaries while helping deliver an optimal cost proposition. In addition, from a talent and skill set perspective, ecosystems provide access to the right assets, talent, and expertise that can be flexed at any time. EY teams believe having a solid cloud ecosystem integration will drive successful business transformation, that enhances performance, accelerates innovation, and mitigates those unforeseen circumstances and drives that transformational growth organizations are looking for.
3: I think as we're better understanding how technology is gonna impact our future, your concept of putting the human at the center is critically important. So I'm glad both of you talked about that. I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts on what leaders can do maybe today to help move toward this model. Ragu, can I start with you?
0: Absolutely. I would wrap up by saying, if you are now embarking on a cloud transformation project, Define your business outcomes, stick to it, drive your program through it, go cloud, native, and think ecosystems.
3: Excellent. Andrew, what are your thoughts on what we can do maybe today to start moving closer to this
4: model? I think collaboration collaboration with the ecosystem collaboration with the with your partners and more importantly putting the humans and employees at the center of what you're trying to achieve and therefore being mindful and purposeful in both the technology and the way in which you go about your transformation those are going to be clear differentiators in most organizations
3: yeah and and a lot of common sense there i I really appreciate your time today gentlemen ragu rajaram is global cloud consulting leader And Andrew Lowe is Technology Transformation Leader with EY Organization. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. Now back to my
1: colleagues at The Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again. I'm Kat Zekreski, a tech policy reporter here at The Post. And I'm joined by Brett Arsenault a Corporate Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Microsoft. So Brett, where we just left off, we were talking about some of the global challenges with cybersecurity. Um, As far back as 2017, you detected attacks on Ukraine and told your team, quote, shut the networks down. I want Ukraine completely isolated from everything we do. Can you walk us through what it was like to make that decision and what you learned from it that's informing how Microsoft is approaching the threats we're seeing today amid the war there?
2: Yeah, and uh, so one for context for everyone who's aware this was uh, shut down for our internal use and the internal systems that we run, uh, which is where my remote was. so I didn't it wasn't impacting customers or any of that component. But um yeah, I remember uh, painfully well that that evening <laughs> uh, when that happened. And it was just you know one of our alerting systems, and at that time, I mean, my eventing was in the billions, not trillions, but we had got good eventing that had suggested there may be something nefarious happening. Then um, the team just was calling to give me a heads up in case there was a problem. Um, and then I said, okay, I was for something in the morning. I was sleeping on my phone. My daughter couldn't sleep at that time. So I was in a room <laughs> just trying to help her be able to sleep. And then uh, I thought about it for a second, uh, judging on what the indicators of compromise might have been, they weren't confirmed at that time. Um, and then called back and just did an analysis in my head of what business did we run there, how much business you run there? where were we in terms of you know processing uh, selling and closing uh, components of the system? And then, you know this is about informed intuition. This isn't a pure hundred there was data to drive the suspicion, but it was an informed intuition discussion. This is the downside of the CSO role. I mean, I made the call and said we should shut it down um, and it's one of those things, if I impact business, then I'm probably looking for a new job the next day. And if, uh, if I don't, then, and in this case, it protected us from a, a pretty bad attack that we saw happen to you know America and some other people. Um, and uh, then you just get a, yeah, you did your job. And so it was a, a set of, here's the data, here's the informed intuition, here's the risk analysis. And based on that, Shut it down and then and then if it plays out in the next four hours, it was just the deciding to take the more cautious path in the fog of war in that scenario.
1: That makes and so, sense. And
2: obviously, sorry, yes, go ahead.
1: Oh no, I was just gonna follow up. I mean, obviously it underscored, you know, some of the geopolitical risks that you face as a company like Microsoft. And so just curious, you know. Were there any lessons from that experience that have informed how you're thinking about cybersecurity now amid the war?
2: Yeah, and at that time, we weren't thinking of it as a as a testing ground for some other attack that might happen years later. At that time, we were just looking at purely at the impact. And frankly, it was back to supply chain. You're going after a required taxation piece of software to operate in that company you have to run with. And so it gave you a wonderful footprint into anything running in the, in the area. Um, it did change a bunch of things, though, from my perspective And that, one, what kind of signals do we need to have and look at? So you go from data-driven to the, you know, this informed intuition. How do you drive more and more data into that process, number one? Number two, in my space, I'm responsible for crisis management and disaster recovery inside of the organization. And so we started doing tabletop drills around that to ensure that we had the legal teams involved, the financial teams, because we did do financial reporting there, as well as the engineering and operational teams. To continue to, t- to continue to test and understand what we would do in the scenario if it was worse and than and what happened in this case, or if the learnings post that event, because that's one of the biggest things we learned from other companies that are impacted. What would you do? How do you isolate? How do you isolate in a way that doesn't impact your operations, but more importantly, that doesn't impact our customers? And so we have a pretty simple crisis plan that has three simple principles. Number one, life, sa- life safety first. Number two, customer. Number three, Microsoft. And so those three things always have to be in the process of everything we do, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a cyber attack, whether it's a pandemic, those same principles apply in every type of response we ever do.
1: And thinking about that response, I also wanted to ask you. Um, you know, I was one of the reporters along with Joe jo Men and Elizabeth Dwoskin who wrote about the uh, recent security problems at Twitter. And um, you know, one of the things that has come up in our reporting there was around um, the former chief security officer, the former security leads' allegations that the company had foreign agents on its payroll, um, and that the engineers at the company didn't have the tools and policies necessary to track them effectively. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, given your global footprint, how is Microsoft uh, you know, keeping track of such insider threats and monitoring internal access to its code base and other sensitive data?
2: I'm just trying to parse through everything you just said, actually. You're referring to Mudge, I assume, in this scenario? Uh,
1: yes, that's yeah. correct, Peter Zatko.
2: Um, yeah, so I think it's a, a different, I think the question was, if I understood, was what do we do to ensure we're doing the right processes and, and we have a check and balance the system for insider threats? And then how do we make sure that we have all the right programs and tools and space that we're, you know, we're not in the same situation that they found themselves in? Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, Luckily, uh, you know this is part of a, this part of our reporting process and what we do. So we have an we have a very interesting insider threat program, I think a good insider threat program. We have you know there are always always things you want to do more of and everything else we all want to go do. but the insider threat program that I built here ended up becoming a product which is our insider threat product that customers can go use as well to track insider threat scenarios. Um, but between that and our research teams, so we have an amazing research team, actually two, two research teams now, one that does all the human intelligence and then the disinformation group we just acquired that's doing that work. So that we we actually have cards for all the actors. We've shared those, like the, this is the mystic blogs and things that people have seen before. And then my team has the signal intelligence, how do we then go distribute all that intelligence across all of our systems? And so from a perspective of, you know, we always are looking and tracking those systems as part of that and getting notifications and working with both HR and Cela because in every area we work, they, they operate differently. Um, and then we also do a regular review with the leadership team on where we are with our programs and processes. Um, do we feel, I mean, that's that's part of the responsibility and we, we report to the leadership team and the board like where are we in terms of our investments relative to the things we're trying to go do. So I feel like we have a good check and balance system. Um, our chief auditor does an amazing job as well at validating anything that I'm doing to make sure it's on on task and, and like I said, I think um, that that's, uh, I feel Good about the Insider Risk Program, and I'm always adding more and more capability to the Risk Program because the risks keep changing every week. This is where, though, again, having this signal is super helpful, right? Because we have profiles, and we we we've been very public about the profiles on I think 43 actors that we're tracking and monitoring at all times on what the IOCs are and what their behavioral patterns are. And when we see anything come up from that, we actually can apply that not just to protect ourselves, but also to immediately protect our customers. We just had a situation like that recently that happened. With a piece of software called Raccoon Stealer.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned so many checks and balances because in our reporting, we didn't find that those were in place at Twitter. It seemed, uh, you know, there were allegations that the company was misleading the board and um, regulators about these types of issues. I mean, as someone who's a security professional, what was your reaction to the allegations about Twitter and the internal chaos at the company?
2: Yeah, you know, probably better for me not to comment on other people's business. I, you know, I think it's been an interesting year uh, regarding those kinds of things. And we just continue to do the best work we can and continue to look for the right checks and balances. And um, I think professionally, this is a comment that's coming. I know this is going to be a topic of discussion this week with a lot of the CISOs around the, you know, what does that mean and how does that work? But do our best work, make sure we have check and balance. And, and like I said, I, I, I can't comment on what happened there. That's 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 their issue. Not that and I'm not, wanna... not empathetic. I and I can appreciate the issue. I just don't, it's not my space.
1: Got it. And um, you know, we just have time for one more question. Um, and I wanted to go back to the topic of the cloud broadly. Um UK regulators recently opened an investigation into Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. Um, saying these three companies make up 80% of the public cloud market in the country. Um, should we be worried that just a handful of companies have so much power over the cloud? Yeah,
2: I'm not actually even familiar with that issue. I'm sorry, it's am not, not trying to deflect that. I'm just not not even familiar with the issue. I I think, honestly, though, Dan Gere wrote a paper like this 20 years ago around monoculture. Mono so I would just say that The the entities, in many ways, I think the entities that um, have the capability, the telemetry and the systems and people, most importantly, the people, to help protect people on other people's behalf is actually, in my opinion, a good thing. I feel good about that. I feel great that there's 8,500 people trying to protect everyone who don't have the staffs that are fortunate enough, like myself, to have a security team. And so I think we can continue to help uh, many entities in that space use that. And 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 so I think that's probably the way I would think about it. And then I comment on one last thing, because it's probably just more near, dear to my heart. Um, part of the thing about companies like this and the thing I love about it is we just have this massive shortage of talent, right? If, 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 if for every three jobs, one security job is left open, that means somebody's not able to go protect themselves. So how do we make sure we have the right security people, not just in cloud providers, but also like the work that we're doing to go? make sure we're doing like we've, you know, we've committed to having 250,000 skilled people by 2025. I'm so proud of the work we're doing there. And the fact that we're not making it part of prestigious university FOO or BAR, it's actually, you know, go through the community colleges, get people engaged, 180 community colleges are on board. The using policy, you know, you mentioned about government and private sector, you know, using the policies that were just released last week around helping this cyber skills shortage through community colleges, which by the way, is also for me personally helpful uh, because not everyone has the opportunity to go to great schools, and so you can create a much more diverse and inclusive workforce, and create a supply chain of these people at the same time as you're, you know, you're creating a, a big skills gap problem, which I think is an awesome opportunity. So for me, that's the part I think is amazing about these companies, and we work together on trying to make those things happen along with governments around the world.
1: We have time for just one last question, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, on that topic of the. Cyber skills shortage. What's one thing that the United States could do in the next ten years to really boost the workforce?
2: Yeah, I think the things we were just talking about um, regarding this, this new bill that we you know we just worked, it just got released this week around trying to create this shortage. Right? Two point five million jobs will go vacant in the U.S. And I think you can't just assume one, it's all engineering people. Two, that it all is coming from four year programs and institutions. And three, that you have a model that doesn't just work on the, you know, use the community colleges and the big colleges and continue to make the content available. So when you look at these uh, institutions that are credited to teach teachers how to do cyber, keep making that material available. And so we continue to invest in that. And then working with other companies and the government provide scholarships for kids to get into these programs. And so again, you create content, you create capability in the teachers and then you create opportunity for students so that you can get the whole flywheel spinning and i love your comment it's a 10-year thing like getting to 250,000 skilled people by 2025 is a big goal you're asking about you know 20 what year is it no 20 2032 so just imagine if we had millions of people by that time it'd be just fantastic so i think that work in, in the us would be the first place i would start and then outside the U.S., I think of working with NGOs and I think of working like with WESIS, which is the you know, women in cybersecurity stuff. There's a bunch of efforts we're doing there that I think will really help us in that space. Because it's not just creating talent for me, it's creating opportunity for a more diverse, inclusive workforce. I really believe we can do that. And by changing where we do it, like I to be honest, I go all the way back to high school and before high school. But, uh, you know, Jenny, you and I are talking about that. But what we still I'll, I'll start with community college and be happy. That's a good beginning place.
1: Well, we'll have to have you back in a couple years to see where we are and, and where we need to go on that front. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for jo- joining us, Brett Arsenault.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.